Hello, it's Vikas Porta, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. My name is Ruben Abraham, and I will be moderating this discussion with President Santos. Uh, you know, we all uh, love to say this whole business of, like, you know, this speaker needs no introduction. But it's my great privilege to actually be with a speaker who needs no introduction. And uh, the, the full room is a testament to that. But so without uh, any ado, I'll introduce uh, President Santos very briefly. Uh, he was the president of Colombia from 2010 to 2018. Um, won the Nobel uh, Prize in, for Peace in 2016 for ending the conflict with the FARC guerrilla movement in Colombia. He's also a media person, a, a person with really very, very diverse background. So let's jump to uh, uh, the question straight away. But um, the way this session is structured is that we'll have a conversation for maybe about 25 minutes or so, and then I want to bring it to the audience, and then you can jump in. But the most important thing is let's keep this informal, let's keep this fun. So uh, please jump in. It's important to keep this interactive. So President Santos, great privilege to have you here with us. Um, let me start with a you know, softball. Uh, tell us a little bit about your childhood in Colombia, growing up. You were born in a political family. What was that like? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me, and I feel very honored to be here in this very important event because I really give a lot of importance with what you're doing, mm -hmm. promoting education and promoting uh, the teachers and the future of the world. My childhood, it was a normal childhood. I come from a, a family, as you said, with a, a journalist background. We used to own the newspaper, which was the biggest newspaper in Colombia. I uh, lived through an era where uh, violence was yes. uh, the rule, not the exception. Um, I went then after school to the Navy and then to university. Uh, but my, my childhood was a normal childhood. I, would, I wouldn't say that it was traumatic. It was a normal childhood. Okay. Um, and personally, um, from my own interest, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious about this foundation you set up in 1994 called the Good Government Foundation. I mean, to me, governance sits at the heart of many, many developing country issues, including education. Um, what was the purpose of setting up that foundation? Well, I, I went to, to the Harvard Kennedy School, the School of Government. Yep. And there I realized how important it is to have good governance for any country. Mm -hmm. And I saw that in Colombia we had a long way to go. So I established this foundation to defend the, what I call the principles of good government, which is efficiency, efficacy, mm -hmm. transparency, and uh, also uh, the uh, need to uh, give the people uh, the accounts of what you're doing. And so I promoted those principles uh, through the foundation and uh, also became uh, slowly uh, sort of a political platform. Sure. And uh, it, when it grew, it grew until 
I became involved in real politics. Active politics, mm -hmm. yeah. So again, a sort of allied question there. So, so for people involved in development issues, uh, in your, is, it, is it a better route to go technocratic through, for instance, a foundation kind of model, or is it actually a better route to go through politics? I mean, what would you recommend to, say, young people here who are thinking about this um, issue? If they want to go into politics? Which one do you think, or do you think it's a mix of both? It, it depends. It depends on the country. Um, you can get the, the traditional route. You start lower in your municipality and you yep. start climbing. Or you can take the shortcut, which is much riskier, mm -hmm. and the probability that you will get to the top is uh, much small. lower. Yeah. But I took that riskier course, uh, and uh, I had lots of luck, lots of uh, help, and uh, I made it to the presidency. But there's no ideal way to, to get into politics. politics. The only important thing is to have in your heart the desire to change things, mm -hmm. to do good, because you don't get into politics. If you get into politics simply to have power, you will fail. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's not the, way, the good incentive. You want to get into politics be, be, because you want to make a change At in scale. the country. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so on a similar sort of macro sort of question, which is, you were famously one of the proponents of the third way, centrism, along with Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And there was this time when centrism became you know, very fashionable. A lot of centrist leaders emerged, including yourself. But today, when you look around the world, you know, the, the centrist Republican is probably dead. The centrist Labor Party member in the United Kingdom is probably uh, doesn't exist anymore. And we see the rise of sort of authoritarian leaders all over the world. I mean. What do you think is going on? Is, was this a response to centrism, or do you think this is just the sort of ebb and flow of politics? And what is the way back to centrism and pragmatism? Well, I, I certainly hope that uh, centrism is not dead. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that today is uh, more needed than ever before. Ever before. Yes. You see uh, in almost every country in the world a very uh, poisonous polarization. And when you have a polarized society, uh, governing becomes very difficult. Um, but I also believe that if you study history, uh, it's the law of the pendulum. Uh, ideas go one way, and then they go back. I certainly hope so, that the centrist uh, ideology will start to regain terrain. It's needed right now, uh, because what is happening is very dangerous uh, and very counterproductive. And if you read what uh, the, for example, the third way uh, people who inspired this movement, uh, like uh, Anthony Giddens in, yep. in London, and uh, you, you relate that to today's world, you will realize that uh, how, how much is needed that type of, of, of centrist ideology. And certainly, I'm trying to promote that uh, worldwide, and I think the people who in some way contributed to that ideology are also trying to regain some kind of momentum. So one of the criticisms of the, cent uh, of the centrist movement was these guys don't believe in anything, right? That they're actually swinging entirely with opinion polls, etc., etc. Now, I, I personally think it's an unfair criticism, but 
but but do you think so I guess the larger question is is what we are seeing around the world so what they call authenticity is it sort of a backlash to the centrist movement well if you study the results of the people who applied the third way in their countries uh, I will give you some examples Felipe Gonzalez in Spain yes uh, Tony Blair in UK, UK. Uh, Bill Clinton in the US uh, Schroeder in uh, Germany, Germany yeah. uh, Fernando Enrique Cardoso in Brazil, Ricardo Lagos in Chile. That era, those periods have been the most prosperous periods in these countries in the last 100 or 200 years. Sure. And it's a pragmatic approach. You, you are correct that it's not ideal. Uh, it's, it's not, not ideologically it's not driven. Ideological, it's more pragmatic. Uh, I, would, I would define the third way uh, in, in the following phrase. You allow the markets to work as much as possible, but you intervene, the state intervenes when it's necessary. That type of approach varies country to country, re, uh, depending on how much the markets work in, in each country and how, much, and how effective the state is in each country. Mm -hmm. But that approach, from the development point of view, is very, very effective. And if you have a social objective, if you want to uh, use this approach to have a social return, I have not discovered a better way in the world to, do to reach those social objectives. So given everything that you see around you, how do you think centrists should respond? I mean, what if you're a centrist politician today in the UK or the US or wherever in the world, I mean, how, how should you respond? Well, we start we have to start by uh, transferring uh, the politics from the emotional again to the arguments yes because today you see the emotion uh, in every single country uh, ruling mm -hmm. uh, the the politics and that is very dangerous because that is what uh, what allows populism to rise and nationalism and and uh, protectionism so if you go back to a more argumentative uh, type of politics, then uh, ideologies like the third way will immediately become relevant. Okay. So just, um, and, and I hope people will ask questions about this, but let's go to Colombia for a second. Uh, when you started uh, in politics, you weren't necessarily a fan of negotiating with FARC. And then once you became president, you actually started the negotiation process. So. Um, what, what caused you to change your mind from taking a very sort of, uh, you know, strong view on how to deal with FARC to co coming to the negotiating table with them? Well, I, I tried to uh, promote negotiations uh, many years before I became president. Um, I, I had a, an experience in my life with Nelson Mandela mm -hmm. uh, back in, in the early 90s when I gave him the chair of the uh, UNCTAD, the United Nations yep. Conference for Trade and Development. I went to Johannesburg. That morning, I turned on the television and live television, there were the, the victims and the perpetrators in television, some of them embracing, others shouting at each other. And I said, what a... This is truth and reconciliation. A, yeah. What a bizarre uh, yeah. situation. And I had a 15-minute uh, uh, appointment with, with Mandela. Those 15 minutes... Uh, lasted five hours, and wow. we sat down, and and at the end he said, 
you should try to make peace in your country because without peace, your country has no future. Right. And there I sort of discovered my port of destination. And I remembered when I was in the Navy, when they, they taught me how to sail, they said, if you don't have a port of destination, sailing is going to be very difficult. If you have an objective, where to go, then life and uh, sailing and everything would be much easier. So I connected the two, and I made peace in my country as my overall objective. Now, I started uh, many years before I was president, but I had to, to go through a very interesting and, and uh, bizarre experience. That uh, I was elected uh, the first time because I was very effective making war. I was the Minister of Defense, right. and I had to weaken the FARC to bring them to the negotiating table. Yes. And then, when they were weakened, and they were in the, tab in the negotiating table, well, I had to, in a way, switch sides. And that was uh, not very well understood in my country. It was well understood in outside Colombia. And so they become, they, they'd start calling me that I was a traitor, that I was, uh, I changed uh, uh, my point of view, um, and uh, it's not a change, a changing of the point of view. War sometimes is necessary to make peace. So that was my question: Is is there a sequencing involved? I mean, is there a so? L let me put it differently. I mean, is there a unique Colombia model to reconciliation in in conflict zones? Well, what I learned, and I studied, seventeen different peace processes. And I tried to learn from the lessons of other negotiations uh, what was applicable to Colombia. And I learned that you have to create the necessary conditions mm -hmm. before you embark in a negotiation. Otherwise, you will fail. And these conditions are uh, different according to the type of conflict and the type of country. In our case, we had some very specific conditions, which I, for many years, uh, worked to, uh, to establish those conditions. For example, when I arrived to the presidency, we had no relations, diplomatic or trade relations. We were very much uh, almost at war with our neighbors, with Venezuela, with Ecuador, yep. even with Brazil. And in today's world, to have a successful negotiation in an asymmetrical war, which is the type of war sure. we had, you need the support of the region and, if necessary, of the international sure. community. So one of the first, first things I did was to make peace with my neighbors in order to bring them in into the sure. process. Uh, those type of conditions you have to create in order to, to be successful. But in, in the Colombian case, the unique aspect of this process is that the, for, for the first time in history, we put the victims in the center of the solution mm -hmm. and, and their rights, their rights to justice, to reparations, to the truth. Many times the victims, what they want is to know why they killed uh, their daughter or their son or they raped their mother um, and the right to non-repetition. So we put the victims and that gave a tremendous boost to the, to the whole process because uh, this is the first uh, process that was negotiated under the 
umbrella of the Rome Statute, yes. which was negotiated precisely to facilitate peace processes. And, and yet, um, you, you sort of alluded to this when you, in, when you started speaking on this topic. You, for instance, you had an opponent in President Uribe himself. Um, you had to, so one part of it is settling the neighborhood, et cetera, and the victims. But there's also carrying your people with you. And turns out President Uribe was one of the opponents of the peace process at that point. How did you deal with that contradiction? Well, making war is always easier than making peace. Yes. Making war, you need a, a leadership which is quite simple and quite easy. Yes. It's a vertical leadership. You rally the forces around you. We are the good guys. Those over there are the bad guys. Let's go attack them. Yeah. That's an easy leadership. Yes. Making peace, you need a more horizontal type of leadership. Instead of giving orders and rallying the forces, you need to persuade. Mm -hmm. To persuade people to forgive when they have suffered what they had suffered. Yes. This is very difficult. So first, making peace is more difficult than making war. Second, making peace will always generate enemies because in any negotiation, the key decision is where do you draw the line between peace and justice. And no matter where you draw the line, you will always have people from one side or the other attacking you. It happened to uh, uh, Rabin in uh, Israel, Israel. It cost him his life. It happened to Mandela. Yes. It happened in the Northern Ireland. It happened almost everywhere. Making peace is difficult because uh, you can never satisfy everybody. There's no such thing as a perfect peace process. So in the case of uh, my predecessor, President Uribe, he took advantage of that for political reasons. And that's unfortunately many times what politics is all about. You take the opportunity to attack your, your successor or your opponent and use whatever argument you have. And he unfortunately, because I think it's unfortunate for my country, chose peace to be his platform uh, to attack. Um, but I think history is um, demonstrating that Which this, this was a correct course. Just one last question on this issue, which is, you then took it to referendum. Yes. And you lost the referendum. Yes. How did you keep going? I mean, when you take a peace process and you lose a referendum as president, how do you find... I'll, I'll, I'll tell you an anecdote. Many months after, I talked to, Des, uh, to David Cameron. Mm -hmm. I said, why didn't you do the refer referendum before <laughs> mine? <laughs> uh, I... Uh, we had negotiated for six years. Yep. This is the longest uh, conflict, armed conflict in the Western Hemisphere. Yes. The only one left with the biggest guerrilla and the, most, uh, the strongest guerrilla in the Americas. And the campaign for the referendum was full of what they call today uh, fake news, uh, all kinds of lies we lost by a very small, small margin. margin yeah. And I had the opportunity, uh, because our constitutional court have, had given me a way out if the referendum was lost, so I took it. And I simply said, I have peace here. Uh, it's already signed. These people are willing to disarm and to get into politics. And uh, 
if I don't take this route of, 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 uh, of uh, renegotiating and going to Congress, we will continue in war for 20 or 30 years. And I had no doubt that uh, insisting and persevering in the peace process was the correct way. And um, you won the Nobel before the peace process was concluded, if you will. The second peace process. The second peace process. Did it help? Oh, it was a gift of God. It was very important. Um, in, in what sense? I mean, well, did it buy you the we, internal buy-in as well? We, we had lost. And, we, and I, I accepted the defeat and I said, I invite the promoters of the no vote, which were against the peace process, to come and renegotiate. What is it that you don't like? And we will renegotiate. And we were starting that uh, renegotiation when suddenly, one day, four o'clock in the morning, the telephone rang, the Nobel Peace. Mm -hmm. And that was interpreted in Colombia as a, a manifestation of the international community in favor of renegotiation. Yeah. And it really, it really helped. Okay. Um, no conversation with a Latin American politician today can uh, go without a reference to Venezuela. Um, I mean, what do you think the ideal response should be? I mean, because Colombia may end up with a lot of the spillover damage from uh, Venezuela. Is there a danger that the crisis might spread? Would you have handled the crisis differently? Well, yes, Colombia is the country that suffers more with this situation. We already have about 1.3 million Venezuelans uh, living in Colombia. This has created uh, tremendous problems. But we do it with generosity because Venezuelans had been very generous with us in the past. The solution, I, I think, and I've been trying to, uh, to promote that solution since I was president, you need what they call a golden bridge for the regime. Um, and you need to avoid a bloodbath at all costs because you have hundreds of thousands of people armed. Chavez and Maduro and the regime with the Cuban uh, uh, influence yes. created what they call the committees to defend the revolution. So you have many people with AK-47s on their bed and if violence uh, erupts, it's going to be a violence for many, many years. And we have to stop that. And the way of stopping that or preventing that is to negotiate a, a golden bridge for the regime to go out in a dignified way. And to do that, you need to include the major stakeholders. And who are they? China. Russia, Cuba, mm -hmm. the US, and Latin America. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they get together, and I think it's in the interest of everybody, I say that Venezuela is like a plane that ran out of fuel. You are, can either allow it to crash or to have a soft landing. Soft landing is this golden bridge, and uh, this should be built as soon as possible because the more time uh, that you allow to prolong this tragedy, uh, the risk of violence goes up. But again, and we'll run into the same peace versus justice conundrum that, uh, that yes, you spoke for example, about. Yeah. I know that giving, giving amnesty to some of the people in the regime would be, for many people, something unacceptable. Yeah. 
But if you want to avoid a violence, bigger, yeah, exactly. you, you have to, uh, you have to, we, we, there's an expression in Colombia, you have to eat that frog. Um, okay, so one of the promises that you made while um, you were president was to make Colombia the most educated country uh, in Latin America by 2025. What's the progress been on that front? Well, we've, we've made a lot of progress, but we have a long way to go. What I did in, in my government first, for the first time in Colombian history, we, we put education as number one in our budget. The priorities of any government are expressed in the budget. So we put, even way beyond the military expenditure, we put education first. We made access to education in public schools completely free to every uh, boy or girl in Colombia. Uh, we started a program that I think is extremely important for any country who wants to have a good and equitable education uh, a special program with early childhood. Early childhood, yeah. Um, and we promoted uh, access to higher education. We received it uh, roughly 36, 37 percent. Uh, when we went out of government, it's 53, 54 percent. And we did a, a very uh, aggressive program to uh, increase the quality of the uh, education through different uh, policies. For example, we copied uh, a scheme from the University of Liverpool where you train teachers to then train other teachers that go into the, into the classroom. Mm -hmm. And there in the classroom, they start teaching other teachers how to teach better. Mm -hmm. That has been quite successful. Uh, we promoted uh, scholarships for teachers to go and do higher education uh, in Colombia or abroad. Um, we uh, also uh, made a, a, a very big effort to, uh, in, to improve in our uh, ratings worldwide. Uh, we became a member of the OECD and compared the quality of our education with the top countries instead of the local countries. And we have been progressing. For example, uh, we were in the last country in Latin America that uh, was measured by the PISA, uh, the PISA yeah, indicators. Course, yeah, yeah. Uh, right now we are fourth. Uh, okay. The first one is Chile. Um, the second and third one are Uruguay and Costa Rica, and, and Colombia is right there behind. So we've been making progress, but we have a long way to go still. Okay. Um, so the theme of the conference is changing the world, right? Or I mean, who, in your opinion, is changing the world for the better? There's a lot of people changing the world for the worse. Uh, who are the people changing the world for the better? Who are your successors that you see around the world? I see, I see a, um, something in, in my country which is very interesting. Uh, we have been able to increase our middle class uh, very much. Mm -hmm. um, when you take people out of poverty, uh, their expectations rise. Aspirations go up, yeah. And I see uh, that middle class, the young people in the middle class, and especially women, um, being uh, driving the forces of change. And I think this is very, uh, very healthy. And they are, they are defending issues which are extremely important. Colombia is a country which is very 
dependent on uh, the environment. We are probably the richest country in the world in biodiversity per square kilometer. And uh, for us, climate change is absolutely crucial. Yep. And so you start seeing young people very much uh, engaged in, in these type of issues on, on trying to uh, alleviate poverty uh, and getting engaged in public issues. I mm -hmm. think this is extremely important because that's the way to change things in any country. But on the global stage, who are the, who are the you know, I mean, not necessarily third way, but like, you know, who, who are your successors? I mean, who do you see actually projecting these messages of hope and inclusion and... Well, there are many people who are, who have the good ideas, who are uh, well-intentioned, uh, uh, and that really depends on, on, on each situation, so, yeah. each country, but you see a, a lot of people trying to uh, make uh, good and, and to improve the conditions of the world, a world that in many respects is going backward, but in many respects is advancing very rapidly. Uh, I share uh, the, the view, for example, of people like, I think he's here in this, uh, in this conference, uh, Steven Pinker, yep. who says, uh, we shouldn't be so pessimistic. pessimistic yeah. uh, we have to have optimism, otherwise your energy will not, uh, will not be enough to, to advance. And yes, we have problems. Of course we have problems. But things but are getting better over time. They, they can be addressed. Yes. I personally think that the, the uh, biggest challenge right now for the world is climate change. Mm -hmm. And we have to be uh, aware of that. But you start seeing the progress that uh, uh, technology is having, uh, the private sector even, and you say maybe we'll, we'll find a solution soon enough. Because if we don't find it, we will all perish. Right. Um, so this is probably going to be my last question, so I'd uh, advise you to just come up with questions. Um, so you sort of touched on this biodiversity climate change issue. I also know that you were deeply influenced by Amartya Sen in multiple locations. So as the leader of a developing country, how do you think about the trade-offs between the need for economic development, which is why how people get out of poverty, and say the environment biodiversity? Uh, obviously, it's not a zero-sum game, but there are trade-offs involved. How does one think about it? I believe that they're not mutually exclusive. Of course. You can have development, sustainable development. As a matter of fact, talking about women uh, in, in a position of leadership, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development yep. Goals, were an initiative of Colombia. Hmm. Two girls, two very bright women from the government came to me in the year 2011 and said, the Millennium Goals are going to finish in the year 2015. Why don't you replace them? Why don't you take the initiative to propose to the world to replace the Millennium Goals with some goals where the developed countries should also be responsible and where the environment becomes a crucial aspect. Mm -hmm. So I went to the Rio summit. Uh, uh, 1991. Uh, no, uh, 2012. Uh, Rio plus 20 <laughs> summit. And I made the proposal of SDGs. And immediately the Chinese and the British said, that's a great idea. And they started, we started to, to negotiate how many SDGs, what, which SDGs, what goals. And we ended up with the 17 that became the world agenda in 
2015 in the United Nations. Mm -hmm. um, so initiatives of this type, you're seeing all around the world, very bright people in your country, in China, in the US, and uh, it's a matter of, of being in the right place and promoting the right issues um, correctly. Promoting issues correctly is a big challenge, but I'm sure that uh, we have a lot of good ideas. Okay. Um, coming to the audience, we have about 10-15 minutes of questions, so please keep your questions really short, snappy. And if you can introduce yourself and the organization you work for, that'd be great. Yes. Okay, hi. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I'm Sherry Sassino with the Global Storymakers. Um, I thank you so much for your commitment to education. Can you tell me how you did in Colombia with um, elevating the education opportunities for the indigenous people? Educa elevating? The, the educational opportunities for the indigenous people. Okay. We, the indigenous people wanted um, to have uh, a special regime for them to, to be uh, in a way responsible for their, their education. I had an experience which, which had a profound effect on, on me. When I started promoting our development plan, our first development plan, I went to the indigenous people and asked for their advice and, and, and their opinion and what they wanted us to include. And one of the indigenous leaders said to me, Mr. President, we appreciate no president has done this ever before. But you have to understand that the definition of development for you is different from the definition we have. Our defini your, your definition of development is maybe one more highway, one more school, uh, one more building, and if you have a house with two rooms, have a house with three rooms. Our definition of development is allow us to maintain our culture. And that has a big impact. So I took the decision to allow the indigenous people to, ha to have a a, a, a major or more influence on the education that they have. And we have now the first indigenous university in Colombia that before was not present. We have a couple of questions here. Here. Uh, actually, um, three. Why don't we do something? We'll just take all three questions together because I see a lot of hands. So go ahead. Entonces, muchísimas gracias por hacer posible el acuerdo de paz en Colombia. Para nosotros de Brasil ha sido muy importante. Muchísimas gracias. Uh, my question is, how do you feel uh, about the situation of violence in Latin America? Because actually we are facing two kinds of violence. We have the violence uh, created by oppressive regimes, like as we are facing now in Brazil with Bolsonaro. But also, actually, we have a very, uh, how can I say, hided war in all of the countries. Mexico, uh, Mexico, Nicaragua. Nicaragua now has a different, uh, a different uh, situation. But actually, we have this invisible war. So, how do you think that we could create a pass in Latin America? And for me, actually, pass is not the contrary of war. Can, can, yeah. And how do you feel about the situation can in we, Bangladesh? Yeah. Sorry, can we just keep questions really short? We're running out of time. That's why. Uh, the the. Uh, just one moment. We'll just take a couple more questions. Okay. Just, yeah. Go ahead. 
My name is Pablo Fetter, I'm the CEO of uh, CLU Education. Uh, Presidente, um, you negotiated the peace deal, um, then you asked the people what the people think about it, you lost the referendum, and decided to go ahead with uh, what you thought was right, and I guess everybody you know, internationally, everybody who cares for Colombia agreed with you. Uh, you won the Nobel Peace Prize for, um, for having achieved that uh, great historical success. Um, yet, when you left your presidency, uh, Can we make a as, as a token of appreciation, you got a, uh, you know, a very low popularity rating. Um, so my question is, how how you, do you deal personally with that um, uh, tension between being uh, doing the right thing and doing what's popular? That's you. You just mentioned the key word. I have always done what I think is correct, not what I think is popular. And I think if you're in government and if you want to be popular, you will not be a successful uh, statesman. And uh, I was aware that what I was doing was not popular, but it was the correct thing to do. And uh, uh, by the way, my ratings since I left government and I've kept silence have gone up and up. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, there's a question here. If you can just keep it super short. Hi Santos, my name is Daniela, I'm Colombian as well. And uh, I had a very different question, and is, um, I think it's important to point out that uh, Colombians who voted no for the plebiscito was not against peace, but against the terms of peace, right? And uh, uh, I want to know, because me and my family are ones that voted no, and I'm not against you, and I think you're a great person and bringing peace to our country, but I would like to know your point of view of the situation currently in Colombia, the horrible cocaine situation we're having, and uh, like, what do you think we can do, youth? How can we help the country? Uh, what, because now you're not the president, so I would like to see what, what is it that the outside world is thinking that Colombia doesn't want peace, those who voted no, but how could we be, move forward from that? Colombia wants peace, and uh, the no vote, we included 95% of their suggestions in the new agreement, in the renegotiated agreement. There are some of the suggestions that were impossible, like for example, that the guerrillas could not participate in politics, so why would they make a peace process? Uh, these type of, of uh, fundamental aspects that, uh, that allowed the peace to, to to rise were the ones that not, would not accept it. So we think we have the best possible peace agreement. It's right now irreversible. The guerrillas are, are now in, in politics. Uh, they have given up their arms. Um, and uh, there's no way that we're going to go back. For political reasons, people are still trying to say, no, that the peace should go, uh, should go back. Uh, we should renegotiate. Nothing of that sort is going to happen. We have to persevere. We have uh, uh, an agreement. We have to comply with the agreement. And the best thing we could do is stop fighting 
over peace. I mean, what society in the world fights over peace? Uh, uh, we should get together, have the peace agreement which was agreed. It's not perfect, as they say, but it's there. It, it allows many thousands of victims to, uh, to save their lives. Uh, you, you have seen in Colombia how in those regions people are now with a very happy future and they're very enthusiastic about uh, what, they're, what they're going through. And I think we should then address other problems instead of playing politics with peace. President Santos, do you want to address her issue about violence in Latin America? Yes, the, the violence, and you're quite correct, there's, there's a hidden sort of war uh, in Latin America in almost every country um, that has to do with drug trafficking, that has to do with the, with the uh, gangs, and uh, that have to do with different uh, types of violence, some of them government-sponsored, uh, depends on, on what country you go to. Um, I think that the best way to uh, fight that, and one, one of the violences that one of the factors that stimulate violence is corruption. And the best antidote for corruption is education. Education, when you have an educated uh, uh, population, uh, they will not allow corruption. When you have an educated population, they will reject uh, the, violent, uh, the violent ways to, to solve the problems. So I would invest much more money in education. Okay. Bangladesh. Help me out. I don't know what the question is about Bangladesh. It's okay. Let's just, uh, we can address it offline. Let's just do a bunch of questions here. There's also a little girl here who has a hand up, so I definitely want to ask her. Uh, okay. Yes, we can start. Yeah, Jose Maria Anton from Virtual Educa. President Santos made education number one priority in Colombia. Teachers became proud of being teachers and also to innovate. I remember one day in Medellin with him, 27,000 teachers for virtual education innovation. Now we're in another world, orange economy. Everybody is talking about artificial intelligence, internet of things, blockchain. How that will affect education for this new orange economy world? Thank you, President. Okay. Again, we'll take a couple more questions, and I think the little girl, the little girl gets, no, there's a little girl here. Uh, please introduce yourself and ask the question. Uh, I'm Shamani Fernandez, and my question is, what do you think is the most important sustainable development goal? What, what is What's the most? Important sustainable. What's the most important SDG? The most important SDG? Yes. That's a very difficult question. <laughs> You know, it's a, that's a question that many people are, are, are discussing. Which is the most important SDGs? Um, some people say it's a fight against the, the SDGs that have to do with poverty, others with the environment, others with health. Um, I could not answer that question. But I will tell you an anecdote. I will tell you an anecdote. We were discussing the SDGs, and a very prominent professor from Scandinavia came and told, said to me, you're doing the wrong thing. And I said, what am I doing wrong? 
he said, you're choosing too many objectives, which he might be right. When you have too many uh, objectives in, in life, you, you don't uh, uh, fulfill any of them. And you have the wrong priorities. And I said, why? And he asked me, what do you think is the best investment to save the planet? And I thought about it and I said, uh, planting trees. And he said, no, that's the second. There's one that is 10 times more uh, profitable from the point of view of saving the planet. It's saving the coral reefs in the oceans. And I didn't know that. And uh, we included the oceans in the SDGs, but we didn't put it as the number one priority. Well. Uh, do you want to address his question? No, I've forgotten what your question is. Do you remember his question? Uh, about, about the innovation? Yes, and, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the uh, new trends and how I to... I mean, this is, a, this, is, this is the question. How are you going to cope, not only in, in terms of the education, but also the labor markets and uh, what is happening with technology? Uh, I, I think every, every single president in, in the world has a tremendous challenge to keep up with the technological progress which goes much faster than the abilities of government to adapt to those changes. Um, and so the, many times the discussion is, should we regulate, should we stop it, or should we just allow it to progress? Uh, and uh, when you start uh, thinking about the consequences of, of artificial intelligence in, in, in many aspects of, of, of your life and of development, uh, you, you, we're going to have to make some very difficult choices uh, that uh, without having 100% of, of the information. I remember I was one time many years ago at the Media Lab at MIT in Boston, and I sat down with the engineers, and he said, uh, uh, Mr. Santos, do you know that 80%, uh, 80% of the technology you are going to use in 20 years, and that, uh, that was about 20 years ago, has, has not yet been invented. And that was diff difficult for me to, to understand, to digest. But this is what is happening. And so it's, it's the question, and I wish I had the answer. But I think that what we need is to st start to at least uh, have a minimum consensus around the world of how to cope with that change in a, in, a, in a peaceful way. So I'm going to unfortunately become the unpopular person in the room because they've asked me to shut it down because the session clock has run out. I'm sorry, I know there are people waiting to ask questions. This is why we should have kept questions really, really short. But thank you, President Santos, for a wonderful session. A warm round of applause, please. <laughs>